Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Welcome back. We are um, continuing our study. And like I mentioned in our prayers is that uh, Pilgrim Christian has made it through the wicked gate. Uh, He made it to the hill uh, where the bird rolled off and he met met these three shining angels, if you remember that. And they represent uh, the triune work of God. And they, they pronounce again the blessings and the privileges of salvation. And then he goes on to, the, uh, uh, now in the story, coming off, just a little off the hill, there's this path. Remember, he's on the narrow path. We talked last time about the importance of being on the straight and narrow, right? There's only, the, the path is Christ, the path is the gospel, and there's many temptations to get off the path, right? So uh, the first diversion we're going to see here is just right off uh, the story, is on your outline here, uh, that Christian is going to run into three individuals, And on your outline here, we're just going to read a little bit of the excerpt from Bunyan. Uh, Bunyan says, I saw then in my dream that Christian went went on his way, that is, until he came to the bottom of the hill. There he saw besides the way three men fast asleep with chains attached to their heels. The name of one was Simple, another was Sloth, and the third was Presumption. And again, if you can imagine this, this is the cool thing about Pilgrim's Progress, especially if you've seen any of the adaptions with uh, the films or the cartoons and so on. It's a little bit humorous. It's a little bit uh, uh, puzzling at times because he's coming off the hill and he sees these three individuals and they're sleeping. And so that's number one, uh, you know, why are they sleeping? Why are they just, you know, uh, conked out? But they're chained. They're chained, right? And so, like, did they chain themselves? You know, where did these chains come from? But the point, of course, is they're, uh, they're in a, a, a position or a situation where uh, something needs to be done. And so you see on your outline here for uh, point A is a Christian attempts to arouse these drowsy travelers. And so you have this new believer. He sees someone, again, who is supposed to be a, a pilgrim, supposed to be a Christian, and they're in a position or a place where they're in danger. Right, and so of course you want to intervene. You want to do something. You want to say something uh, to help uh, to per- help to help them. And so before we get into the, the the responses and these three individuals, one of the things I want to say first off the bat is that probably today in this class I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, so I, I want to preface this. I was going to give out funyuns this morning to try to soften you up, but I think I'm going to wait till next week to give you funyuns. Funyuns rhyme with bunion. So that's, remember we talked about that? And so um, you're just going to have to show me some mercy and grace. And the reason I say that is that, um, remember, this is an allegory, and you have these characters. And so uh, we talk about simple or sloth or presumption, they're characters. And the reason why I, I think I could possibly get in trouble is that all these characters that Pilgrim runs into um, are descriptive of a lot of times Christians. Okay, sometimes they're non-Christians, and it's very, very obvious, but we're talking about dangers to the Christian life. We're talking about um, conditions, spiritual conditions where Christians find themselves in, and we say, you know, I've been there, I've done that, I've got the t-shirt, or perhaps I'm, already, I'm in that situation right now. 
And a lot of times, like you'll see with, with Pilgrim, is that when someone confronts you with that or shares with that with you or tries to help you, we get defensive about it. We get prideful about it. We get angry about it. We don't want people to, to challenge us, all right? Now, my point here is that for me, I've been all these things, okay? And, and I probably will end up in these things again at some point. And so these are common descriptions, I would argue. But again, if it doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to you. Okay, I'm not pointing my fingers at anybody, but I may be looking at you. Okay, so, um, there we go. So, with well-intentioned concern, Christian stirs and warns these befuddled pilgrims, perhaps with the added exhortation, awake sleeper and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And you're going to hear this phrase over and over again, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Why? It's because there's a lot of sleeping that goes on spiritually for believers, at least the temptation to be uh, complacent or be asleep spiritually. No doubt he anticipates a thankful and repentant response. Well, and then on top of it, uh, what Christian will say is that you need to not only wake up, but you're in danger. You're in danger. And this is the thing over and over and over again that we be reminded. The last time we talked about um, when we got to Interpreter's House, uh, the, the, the warrior image. We talked about the fighter, right? The battle, right? And again, we war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then when we are not fighting, when we're taking a siesta spiritually, when we're uh, being unconcerned and we're, uh, we're being distracted and we're not on the alert, then we're in danger. We're in danger, we're in danger. Because again, Satan doesn't take any holidays. It's actually a famous movie. And anyone seen that movie? No, fair not. Okay, yeah, devil takes a holiday, okay? Um, and the point, of course, is that we're always at battle. We always need to be on the alert and that's what he says here. Uh, Pilgrim says to these, uh, uh, these sleepers, your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone who he may devour. And unfortunately, what's going to happen in book two of Pilgrim's Progress is that Christiana is going to come with the boys and they're going to find these men hanged. All right? They will be judged. They will be uh, what, what, they, uh, what Christian was warning them about actually does take place. Now, moving on, let's talk about uh, point B. Uh, what's their response? To this, this is the very bottom. It says, they, they merely glanced at him and replied in the following unconcerned manner. The word unconcerned is kind of key here. Unconcerned. Uh, simply, a naively answered, simply or simple, naively answered, I do not see any danger. Sloth mumbled, let me have a little more sleep. Sounds like sometimes people that we know. Let me have a little more sleep. Let me just sleep in a little bit longer. And then finally, we have presumption proudly asserts, Every tub must stand on its own bottom without the need of assistance. So what else need do I say? And so they all lay down to sleep again and while Christian decided what would be better if he should be better to be on his way. So let's talk about these three individuals, these three characters, what they represent, and, and so on. Now, simple sees no danger. This is on page two of the outline. So why should he not sleep? Now, the character personifies a foolish individual. And the Bible talks a lot about the naive, uh, the naive person, the simpleton, the foolish person, um, the person who's gullible. In fact, I've got a whole bunch of adjectives there to describe that. It says, this simple or naive pilgrim is often youthful. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Ignorant, wayward, senseless, unwise, indulgent, gullible, and careless. He's in danger of perishing through ignorance. Now, the, the usual understanding of this is usually is youth. 
okay? Though I would argue you can have older people who could be exactly like this too, all right? Um, so for example, real quickly in the book of Proverbs, and I always encourage, we always should stay the book of Proverbs because the book of Proverbs is, uh, for example, Jesus in chapter one, and I've got the verses listed there, 4, 22, and 32. Uh, verse 4, and it talks again about you know, uh, Solomon writing the Proverbs and so on, the reasons why. In verse 4, it says, To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. And then in verse 22, you have this challenge for the naive ones, or the simpletons, or even sometimes I've seen some translations, the stupid ones. Um, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. And then, the, then you have kind of the, the consequence of this mentality in verse 32. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. So there's an outcome here, all right? And you already know, again, that in Scripture we're, we're called uh, to be childlike in our faith, but not to be childish, Right? And so over and over again, we're told in Scripture, we're to mature, we're to grow up, um, we're to, uh, again, constantly grow spiritually. And so some verses that, that tie into this is on page two here. Um, Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth, and there's our word there, okay, grow, grow, the body of Christ for the building of, its, of itself in love. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. And then we have the book of Hebrews. And you know, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews kind of chastises the church by saying, you need to grow up. Okay, so some of you should be teachers. And uh, that's what we have in verse five, or chapter five, excuse me, where the writer says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And spiritually, he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so again, we're, uh, this uh, individual, simple, uh, is the wide-eyed youth, supposedly, uh, but it could be anyone who's heading into trouble because they will not listen to counsel. They will not listen to counsel. Um, and, I, and I've thought about this quite a bit, I mean, all of these things quite a bit, trying to understand you know, uh, how it's relevant to our day and age and so on. And it seems to be, again, in, in our culture, in the evangelical church in some sense, that we have a lot of undeveloped, uh, immature, childish Christians, people who, uh, who are infants in the faith, and they're in danger. They're in danger. They're in danger. Uh, part of the naivete, I'll use that word naivete, is there is danger in the culture. We already talked about Satan. He seems to prowl around looking for whom he may devour. But my sense of the culture is that the culture is increasingly becoming antagonistic to the faith. There are, there are many uh, enemies in the, in the world uh, system that are seeking to destroy Christians, their faith. Um, and so <clears throat> to be wise is to be aware of what, the, what those dangers are. 
So for example, if you're sending your children to the universities, if they're in higher education, you have to realize again, you're in enemy territory, right? There's, there's propaganda, there's ideologies, there's a worldviews that are diametrically opposed to Christianity. And if you just say, well, it's just education, I'll just send them to, send them to these schools, they'll be okay, right? Without preparing them for that, that is, again, being uh, naive, simplistic, um, gullible, not realizing, again, is that if you are, uh, you send them to Caesar, don't be surprised to come back Romans. Right? So we have to be wise. You know, again, Jesus says we need to be innocent as serpents, but why? I'm sorry, flip that around. Innocent as doves. Whoo! Almost that. Okay. Switch. Oh, yeah. And why as serpents? All right. There we go. All right, any thoughts on that? Questions, comments, anger? Because <laughs> nobody here is like that. All right, good. Yes, sir. Just one other comment, Doug. When we're talking about the fool and the wise, you know, it's not just um, looking at it from an intellectual perspective. Right. There are a lot of fools who are very intellectual. Right. And I know them. Um, but biblically, it's really talking more about Morality and immorality. Right. The fool says in his heart there is no, no God. Right. Yeah. The fool is the one who's immoral, who is rejecting the law, who's rejecting the truth. The yeah. wise person is the one who obeys. Right. So it doesn't matter if your IQ is, you know, maybe not in the hundred right. but if you're obedient to God, you are wise. Yeah, I agree. Good. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about the sloth. Okay, the sluggard, as the Book of Proverbs refers to this person. Um, sloth says, uh, can only think to indulge the flesh, so why not sleep? Sloth replies, yet a little more sleep. This lazy pilgrim is often unproductive, vulnerable, slack in labor, drowsy, imperiled, cowardly, and ir irresponsible. He sees no uh, need to rush into things. He has time, so he thinks, and so delays pursuing a pilgrimage. Perhaps tomorrow or the next day he'll consider his plight or get serious about God's word. Um, you have on the page two, of course, the book of Proverbs talks about how long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And so shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler, and so your need like an armed man. Now I want to talk about the sloth, the sluggard, um, this individual quite a, a little bit more. Uh, because this is, um, well, let's put it this way. This is a, a topic perhaps we don't talk about a lot. And, I, and I've tried to figure this out in some ways, uh, partly because it's connected, I think, to the culture, right? A lot of times when I talk to my students, uh, when we, t for example, in U.S. history, we'll talk about, you know, the characteristics of an American. You know, what's, what are characteristics of American? It used to be, again, like, you know, uh, Americans were can-do people, right? They were diligent, they worked hard, the process and work ethic. Um, they were uh, in integrity, you know, truth, justice in the American way, Superman, you know, um, there was certain distinctions about America and Americans that we were proud about, right? And typically now when I ask the, the, the generations, the recent generations, like, you know, name me the very first quality or characteristic you would say, you know, that's descriptive of Americans today. What do you think the very first thing they say? Luke, what do they say? Your generation. Inclusion. Wow. I haven't got to that one yet. Okay, yes, but inclusion would be one. Yes, good, thank you. Caroline, you know. 
Lazy, that's right, yes. It's amazing again is that they'll admit that Americans in general are lazy people, right? Now we don't want to admit that. We don't like to say that, okay? But we have all these time-saving devices. We all have these diversions. We have this culture of entertainment, right? And this idea a lot of times is again, let's just take it easy. You know, let's just, uh, let's just coast, right? Let's do as little work as possible so I can just kick back, relax, have fun, um, and just pretty much just, um, you know, uh, just go along. And, 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 you know, people can argue with me, but as a teacher, I'll just tell you right now, people, students in general are lazy, okay? And because and the opposite, of course, is discipline right is a lot of times in raising your children you have to teach them how to have self-control how to have discipline um, how to uh, um, good, use good time management skills and so on and so forth and we struggle with this and we struggle with this also spiritually um, so for example in uh, Table Talk magazine this month if you, if you guys ever read Table Talk right um, they had the title of this issue is Lost Virtues okay Lost virtue, Virtues and one of the virtues is diligence Diligence, all right? Um, it also applies to, um, we talk about spiritual disciplines, for example. Uh, a lot of times we'll hear from the pulpit or we'll hear from Sunday school classes, you know, the, 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 um, how American Christians in general don't practice spiritual disciplines, right? For example, what would be a spiritual discipline? Come on. Prayer. prayer. Yeah, number one, prayer. Again, uh, how well do we pray? I'm talking to myself first, all right? Um, fasting, how often do we fast, right? How, uh, how uh, much time do we devote uh, to meditating upon the Word of God, right? These are, and we can just go on and on, uh, evangelism, other things. These are spiritual disciplines that you could look back on the church. Um, I don't know how far back you want to look at the American church, the church in, ch in church history, that um, it seems like these Christians were more devoted to these spiritual disciplines. They understood them better, they, they practiced them more, and the culture has, I believe, has changed that, has affected us, right? And so again, the sluggard, the sloth, has um, been kind of ignored, essentially, because we're used to it. Yes? We're kind of used to it. And I would be the first to admit, again, is that um, I've had this, uh, you know, struggle against about, you know, being productive and pursuing the Lord um, and giving Him the, the, the time and attention that, that He deserves. Now, another thing I want to uh, talk about, just a couple things, is, you know, a lot of times with the, the, the debate about uh, the sloth and the slugger and so on, is that, well, um, we are, you know, the, the, the accusation of legalism or the accusation that, well, um, you know, we're, 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 what we're talking about is salvation by works. You know, you need to work harder. Just work harder. Do more. Be busy. Okay? We're definitely, that's kind of our problem too, is that we're a very busy culture and so on. And yet, um, we talked about last time, uh, the image again about the importance of, of spiritual diligence. It's a, a, a spirit-enabled diligence for the glory of God. And of course, Scripture talks a lot about this. Um, in Zephaniah 1.12, this is not in your outline here, but there's just verses that, that address this issue. Uh, where in, uh, The minor prophet there says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. You also have the famous uh, phrase from Amos 6.1. We hear the phrase, At ease in Zion. Have you ever heard that? At ease in Zion. No? You're not familiar with that phrase? Some people are, right? 
the idea of spiritual complacency, this idea that you're, t you're, you're coasting spiritually, all right? You're in an inertia. You're stagnant, okay? Those are all bad words, by the way. Okay, you don't want to be stagnant spiritually. Um, one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we talked about the Apostle Paul last time, the metaphors that he would use. We talked about the warrior metaphor, right? You've got to fight the fight, fight the good fight, right? We also talked about, about the athlete. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, at least after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, which is a horrifying verse, by the way. Then Revelation, since we're in Revelation from the pulpit, <coughs> Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who is the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found, found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold your garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Um, one more thing here, too, and then I'm going to show you a quick video. We'll use our high-tech presentations here, which hopefully will work. Um, I found another article here too, uh, and again, there's lots of information about this issue or this problem of slothfulness, spiritual slothfulness. Um, and the title of this was Nine Signs of Spiritual Narcolepsy. So we're going to throw another metaphor in here, spiritual narcolepsy. I don't know if you've ever heard, thought about thinking like that. But these are the nine signs. They may apply to you. They may not, okay? But here they are. We talk about Jesus, but we aren't genuinely experiencing him. He's distant and unreal in our everyday life. He's someone we talk more about than we talk with. So the first sign is we talk about Jesus, but we aren't genuinely experiencing him. Number two, our relationship with Jesus, our spiritual life, is more of a weekend thing than an everyday, uh, everyday of the week thing. Church defines our experience with Christ more than Christ defines our life experience. Okay, and then again, this whole idea of we're checking in on Sundays, maybe Wednesday nights, but the other days of the week, again, I do my own thing. Uh, God pretty much, again, uh, compartmentalized. Number three, our spiritual life is more form than substance. We'll talk about Mr. Formality here perhaps today. But he, this, the writer goes on to say here, it's more of an outside than an inside reality. We may do and say all the right things, avoid all the wrong things, but it's not real or alive in us. It's something we do, but not necessarily something that we are. Number four, we haven't experienced much authentic change in our life in a long while, though we've been faithfully doing all the right things. Now, again, that little second part there, I'm not sure, I'd have to qualify a little bit. But the writer goes on to say, since it's impossible to genuinely experience Jesus and remain unchanged, this is a clear sign we're asleep in the light. So, again, I, I do understand what he's saying here, again, is that if we're in an authentic relationship with Christ, he's going to change us. You're constantly changing. 
You're constantly being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. I tell my kids this all the time. Uh, I remember Caroline remembers this. I said, if I see you 10 years from now, okay, uh, I'll probably be dead by then, but by 10 years from now, okay, she'll be different. Okay, she'll look the same, but she'll be more Christ-like. She will be more mature. She'll be different because God's changing her. Okay, and if there ain't no change, if there's no spiritual growth in your walk with God, then that's a sign perhaps you're asleep in the light or you have spiritual narcolepsy. Number five, we're more concerned about the role God is playing in our plans than the role we should be playing in His plans. Number six, we seldom really, we seldom really consider the eternal condition of people in our world. Can we read that one more time? We seldom really consider the eternal condition of people in our world. We're able to rub shoulders with them daily without ever addressing their spiritual condition. And again, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm hoping and praying, I know for myself, again, is that I am aggravated um, and grieved all the time because I'm surrounded by people who aren't saved. All right? And, I, and I, I'm praying for them and I'm asking God to help me somehow, some way, to be a light, to be, a, to be salt, to be a witness to them in some way because um, it, it's, it's a burden, right? Is I, and I, know the, I hope that's the same for you. Because I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are going to hell. It goes on to say here, verse uh, point seven, we're living we're living spiritually unnoticed. People around us don't know we're Christ followers. They don't notice anything anything different about us because there's nothing to notice. They don't pursue our advice when things aren't going well in their lives. Number eight, we tend to live for the moment more than the eternal. And we talked about this with patience and passion. Remember that? The two children in her Tupper's house, right? And again, we tend to live for the moment than the eternal. And this is, the person says here, today defines our choices more than eternity. And then finally, number nine, we don't feel like we're having a, we don't feel like we have a problem with being asleep in the light. The person who writes says here, when I, uh, this is a big one for me. When I'm not consciously aware of the danger of becoming less passionately spiritual, it's a clear sign I'm already there. Okay. And uh, asleep in the light is kind of the phrase here. I have a little on your outline there, uh, the song from Keith Green. I don't know if you guys remember Keith Green or New Keith, uh, if you don't. Well, yeah. And one of his songs, which was very, very convicting, I remember as a kid listening to this song, was Asleep in the Light. Again, these pilgrims, these individuals are asleep in the light. They should not be sleeping. That's the point. Okay. And um, so what I want to do uh, to end with Sloth is play a John Piper uh, video here. It's, all, it's not too long. And Piper, he's retired, and I didn't, have, no, didn't know if you knew this, but he writes poetry, okay? He's, he's really big in poetry. And this particular poem is uh, Pilgrim's Conflict with Sloth. And so he's taking the role of Pilgrim, and Sloth is personified. And as he is in retirement, and in his, not just his retirement, but his entire life, where Sloth keeps trying to tempt him, tempt him, right? And you'll hear this now again, it's in the, the, the cadence of poetry, so for those of you who are not auditory learners and have problems with poetry, forgive me, just get what you can from it, and um, we'll go from there. All right. Let's see. And for those of you in the back there, someday we're going to get this, this figured out on the other side, okay? I'm going to turn it up real loud so you can hear it. Okay, please play. My name is Pilgrim, 
yesterday at dusk, I met along my way an enemy. His name was Sloth. He tried to lure me like a moth exhausted to his idle flames. As always, he used other names, relief and respite and repose and rest and leisure. These he knows are worthy seasons in this age, worthy names to make a sage out of a scoundrel. Look, he said to me, affecting praise. You've led your church for 30 years and I'm glad that you at last comply with my advice. I'm willing still to help you rest, though my goodwill, I must admit, has withered from all your unwillingness to come when I've invited you before. But I replied, I still deplore your ways and your deceitful snares. What makes you think that all my cares would suddenly transform your mirth and your amusements? as if worth were made of ease and emptiness. My urgent prayers do not express compliance with your old advice. No more today does it entice than it has ever done. Then why, said Sloth, do you retire? Should I not hear this as a knocking at my door? Come now, my welcome mat is out. Are you not standing there? No, I replied, I'm not. And where I stand, you cannot comprehend. I do not aim with you to spend a single hour, though I confess you are a subtle cheat and dress your house with promises your name can never keep, sloth. To my shame, I visited your rooms enough to know you are not rest. You bluff your way into the lives of drained and weary men with pity feigned and promise life as if the soul of man were made to sit and roll the dice until some happy pair make him a champ or millionaire. You cannot understand my aims. I do not live for wealth or games. Sloth felt the sting and said, I know you are kind. A workaholic. Oh, sleep not, play not, throw to the wind God's gift of leisure days, rescind the work of Christ who bought your rest. Oh yes, I know your kind. Invest, 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 and never take your dividends on earth. You make your way to heaven by your work, your precious work. Oh, do not shrink a moment from your service of this holy God, your life, your love. Perhaps, I said, had I not heard this censuring before, conferred from better lips than yours, I would just thank you for the warning. Good and useful outcomes flow from such rebukes when love is in the touch. But you have never loved. Along with wrath and greed and pride, and strong desires for sex and food and eminence, you seven deadly sins dispense destruction everywhere. And then you cover treachery again and smile as you condemn the heart that wars to quench your flaming dart. You cannot grasp in part or whole the glory of a Christian soul at work at rest. The sun had set 
and sloth said, Night comes, pilgrim. Let me now keep your book while you sleep. Will not your tireless Jesus keep your going out and coming in? Come, pilgrim, rest. It is not sin to sleep. That's true, I said. But it is sin to sleep for sloth. I will not sit or lie while you are near. But stand and take this book in my right hand and in my mouth until you are no longer in my way nor bar my path of industry in this next season of my life. You miss the mark, old sloth. You do not know what Jesus bought. Oh yes, I'll show you, sloth replied. Come unto me, all you who labor now, and see the rest that I have bought for you. That's what he bought. Quotes that are true, I said, do not make truth. Old sins like heretics build vice on spins from true half-sighted texts. How gives the Lord this rest? As my God lives, I'll tell you, sloth, he gives his rest under a yoke. His sweet bequest blood-bought and suited to the back of every weary saint, the knack of all our plowing. Jesus makes the weighty burden light and takes the yoke beams in his hand and lifts and carries us. Our works are gifts, and Jesus is the giver. Grace bought and powers every pace and every enterprise. Sloth, we were made and made again to be co-makers with the maker of the world. To see the world above and then to make the world below more beautiful. To learn, to know, and then to make, to shape, adorn, compose, produce, and turn a thorn into an etching tool. To write, to say what never has been said that way. To sing, to draw, to paint, to build, to stitch, and weave until we fill the world with truth. For this God spoke and Jesus died. This is our yoke, our happy yoke. You will not take my work. Sloth, we were made to make. So, pilgrim, Sloth replied, you'll earn your heaven with your arts. Go learn your Bible better. Saved by grace, not works. The book is clear. Go chase your heaven laboring. That's not my taste. My heaven, sloth, I answered, chased me long before I found my way to it. Grace, to be sure. The day will show again the half-text you left out. Sloth, we are made to do we are workmanship in Christ, made for good works. He sacrificed his life that we might live in them. He the vine, we the stem, and they the fruit. Is not the fruit of love our life? Pointless dispute, Sloth muttered to himself. He turned to go and said to me, You've spurned my offer of sweet rest. Go waste your life. You are a fool. 
you'll taste your sorrow. Mark my words. And he was gone. And so, one victory obtained. My weary soul was kept. And I lay down my head and slept. So if you get a chance, if you didn't quite get everything, you can look at the transcript on that, and it's pretty good. All right, a lot there, a lot to think about on this issue, and we can't, of course, just uh, spend the whole class on it. But again, I thought it was worth talking about. If I had to camp on anything, I wanted to camp on that. Um, on our third point, third person is presumption. And presumption basically says, I don't need any help. Okay, who are you again? You want to help me get out of these uh, the chains and... Uh, you have the, the for subpoint A there, presumption smugly retorts with, with a byword, every vat must stand on its own bottom, and that's, of course, 17th century uh, uh, idiom, which is to say, I can handle my own problems with no help from you. So, so those who presume upon the grace of God are often the ones most offended when godly counsel comes their way. Presumption was quite comfortable before Christian came along with his unwanted advice. And he's quite ready to send Christian on his way so he can slip back deeper into his spiritual coma, right? And so one of the things you see, one of the, the lessons here, well, actually, I'll, I'll read the, the application here in a minute. But the point, of course, a lot of times is we need other Christians in our lives. We need other Christians in our lives on this pilgrimage to speak into our lives, to challenge us, to encourage us. We need each other. And that's what you're going to see with Pilgrim, again, as he comes with uh, all these different uh, characters come alongside of him uh, who are going to help him and uh, encourage him and so on. But also, too, when people are in danger, you need someone who God's going to use to speak into their lives and, and to, to uh, warn them. Now, our, our application here real quick, uh, this is on bottom page three. It amazes Christian that men in such danger could refuse his help. He had tried to awaken them, given them godly counsel, and even offered to do what he could to remove their, their irons. Yet they spurned his kindness and returned to their sleep. It may amaze us as well that desperately needed sinners would fail to see their need and cast aside the free offer of the gospel. It may defund us how one who stood in view of the cross, professing Christ as a pilgrim, could one day turn from the way and run headlong into sin and danger, refusing to heed godly counsel and instruction. But Bunyan strikes here at the very heart of man's dilemma. Natural man cannot see or understand his danger. Natural man terribly underestimates the bondage of his sin. Though he may profess religion, natural man is all too quick to resort to his own devices and rest in his own abilities, especially when he senses in his own mind that God's way must not be working for him. Okay, any thoughts, comments, questions? Wow. Okay, all right. So then we have this really unusual and humorous sight, if you can picture your mind, is that he's on the path and there's walls on both sides. And as Christian's walking along, and this is the, the, the sub-point there, he notices two guys falling over the wall. All right, it's almost like Humpty Dumpty, not Humpty Dumpty, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott Costello, whatever you know, duo you want to use here, right? They're, um, they're, and they're, they're, they're jumping over the wall. I've got a little picture there for you. And, uh, and they run up to Christian. They catch up to him and say, hey, can we join you? And the name of these two individuals, one is formalist and the other is hypocrisy. All right? So you can see where we're going with this one, right? hopefully, especially with hypocrisy. Now, in the text, if you get a chance to read all Pilgrim's Progress, there's a lot more interaction and, and dialogue that goes on there. 
But the first thing is that Christian is suspicious of anybody who comes who comes over the wall, right? He basically challenges like, there's only one way in, it's the gate, and you have to be on the path, and there's certain qualifications, and you guys ain't got any of this, right? So automatically Christian's on the defense saying, there's something wrong with you. And that's why you have on the subpoints there, he, he's basically tell them, your, your entry's illegitimate, um, and in fact, I'll read that little part there, is that in tumbling over the wall called salvation, these intruders signify they have not come by the way of the wicked gate, or the house of the interpreter, or the place of deliverance. They were religious raiders, interlopers, and squatters, if you know what a squatter is. Um, their breeding's illegitimate because they don't come, where they come from is a place. In fact, it describes them not only as that they're, um, it's a place called vainglory, but the reason why they're going to Celestial City is for praise. Okay, it's not God's praise. It's not to, to go to, to, to be the king. Um, it's all about them. It's about human religion, okay, focusing upon, you know, uh, uh, applause and all that. And that's why the motivation is also challenged there, too. Now, let's look real quickly at the very bottom here about formalists. Uh, the formalist, you should, uh, again, may not be familiar with the word, but this is a person who rests on the outward forms of religion. He is content to believe that if he does the right things and says the right things, about that, says the right things, that God will be satisfied with his efforts. He trades the convicting truth of the gospel for the comfortable customs of men. Now, again, for formless, for Bunyan, it would be the Anglican Church, okay, in the 17th century, right? Um, you think of high church, if you're familiar with the term high church, right? Um, in our day and age, you could argue maybe uh, Anglican, Roman Catholic, um, uh, any of the churches that have the bells and smells, okay, right, okay? Because there's been this attraction. There's been a number of evangelicals who've been attracted to ceremonies and, and rituals and uh, again, pageantry. You know, pageantry. Okay, okay. Um, and these are the types, all right. And so they're more they're more enthralled with the stuff that you do and the participation and the experience, and not so much again actual salvation. Okay. And so uh, Spurgeon. Remember, we talked about Spurgeon makes a lot of comments about Pilgrim's Progress. And one place he says, "Formalist thinks, uh, think we do not mind being Christian, uh, christened." Confirm, taking the sacrament, or going to church or chapel. But this repenting of sin, this believing, this clinging to Christ, this seeking after holiness, ah, it's far too much about. We, they would rather tumble over the wall. They cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then Bunyan is going to make a comment in a, a sermon called The Straight Gate. He'll say, neither is the formalist exempted from this number. He is a man who has lost all but the shell of religion. He is hot indeed for his form, but no marvel, uh, for that is all he can contend for. But his form is without the power and spirit of godliness. He has the, the form of godliness and deny the power thereof. And of course, a quote from uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.5 on that. Um, you know, uh, another word we could use here is tradition. I, mean, I always when I think of tradition, I always think of Fiddler on the Roof, right? <laughs> you ever see Fiddler on the Roof, right? They got the song tradition, right? I was going to, okay, okay. So, um, um, and that's the struggle, right? That they have in that, okay. Um, and so my question for, before the, we have to leave here is, in evangelicalism, do we have a struggle or problem with formalism, with tradition, with resting on externals? Because a lot of times it's very easy to criticize like those other bells and smells denominations or churches or religions and think well you know for evangelicalism it's stripped down man I mean we got the pulpit that's the primary focus and it should be right 
And so, you know, we put uh, churches in strip malls, and, you know, it's pretty lean, right? There's not a lot of distractions. And so, therefore, we don't have to worry about this or deal with this. Yes or no? Let me give an example. Um, this morning, we were having, a, I was, um, you know, tithing, you know, giving to the Lord, all right? Um, I had this thing on, I have this ritual. I'm going to use the word ritual. Ooh, okay. Um, and I um, was busy this morning, and I got my computer, because I do it through the internet, okay? And uh, I plugged my money in, and I popped it in, right? Just did it, right? Pat myself on the back, going, okay, check. Got that off my list, right? And then it shocked me, because I realized I didn't even think about it. Now, I, I did it, but I didn't worship the Lord when I did it. You follow me on that? Yes. Okay. And we do that a lot of times. We have these habits. We have these customs. We have these traditions. We do these things a lot of times, and we're just in a pattern, right? And so it's interesting, again, is that we can easily criticize other groups and churches and things like that, but we got to be very, very, very careful because I think anyone can get into that rut or these traditions or these, uh, these kind of patterns again and forget, again, the substance of that. Again, why am I doing this? And again, is this worship acceptable to the Lord? Is this pleasing to Him? Am I doing this out of a heart of love and, and, uh, and honor and glory to Him? Right? Because even you can even go to church, for example, and say, you know, i got to clock in, man. Right? And go through the whole process and never meet Jesus. I know that can be controversial in saying that. I hope, again, anyone ever comes to these doors, they're, they're confronted with Christ all the time. But again, it, I, you know, that's, that's a possibility. All right? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and release you. You guys have a great Lord's Day.